Job chapter 6, verse 4 says this. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Today we will continue considering Job's back and forth dialogue with his friends Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Rather than use one text for my launching pad for this topic today, I want to pull from several of Job's responses to his friends as they try to tell him that the reason for his suffering is his sin. And I hope that today, in looking at his responses, you will see this glaring tension. Because it's clear here from Job 6.4, as well as many other passages, that Job believes in God. He has faith. He believes that God exists. He believes that God is just. He believes that God is sovereign. And he continues to avoid anything that would be a sin against God. And so he practices what he preaches. He maintains his integrity. However, it's also clear from this verse and many other passages that Job is confused. He doubts God's goodness. He doubts God's love for him. He doubts God's plan for this world. He doubts that God has dealt with him according to justice. And thus, as we see our friend Job suffer intensely and then speak out of that suffering, today we are faced with another question that this book addresses. Can doubt dwell with faith? Can these two things coexist in the human heart? Faith and doubt. And it is this question I hope to address from the book of Job, as well as other inspired portions of the Word of God. So join me as we ask the author for his help. Oh God, we come to you today with faith, but perhaps with doubt. We ask that you would deal with us according to what we need. Not necessarily what we want to hear, but what we need. And give us ears to hear, O oh God. Speak truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of Job, part six. Job responds to his friend's arguments. Just by way of review, Job is suffering. Satan has taken from him his children, his estate, his livelihood, his his reputation, everything. And, and, and Job maintained his integrity. And so once again, Satan attacks him now in his health. And, and Job is suffering in his health. He is weak. He is frail. He is, he is hurting. He is scarred. He is itchy. He, is, he can't sleep. And his friends open their, voice, open their mouths and they begin to, to opine. Hey, Job, here's why you're suffering. You're suffering because you're a sinner. You're suffering because you haven't repented, and so on. And Job knows that that's not the case. He knows he's a sinner, but Job keeps short accounts with God. And we know, because we read Job chapter 1, that in the eyes of God, Job is righteous. And so it's not that Job is suffering according to his sin. But Job doesn't see like we see. And so in all of his suffering, 
there's a lot of confusion. A lot of doubting. And I want to show you that in Job's heart resides both faith and doubt. So just a smattering of scriptures here. I want to look at Job's faith and Job's doubts. And as I go through this, perhaps you could relate that in your heart you see faith, but you also see doubt. Well, what did Job believe in? Job had faith in God's power and sovereignty. And there are a myriad of verses I can show you, but for sake of time, just zooming into chapter 12, verse 13, which says, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If you were to ask Job, do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe that God is powerful? Oh, yes. Do you believe that God is sovereign, free to do what he pleases? Absolutely yes. Job would check all of those boxes. Job certainly had faith in God's power and sovereignty. And in this, Job also had faith that God created him with a purpose. God's not arbitrary. God has intention and order and design and sophistication in his creation, including us human beings. Look what he says in Job 10. Verse 8 says, Your hands have fashioned and made me. Now listen, as he, as he talks about God making him, it's also coupled with the agony of what's going on in his life. Your hands have fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Verse 11, you clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Did you see the tension there? God, you've made me. You loved me. You crafted me. But, but now, what, what are you doing? Why is your hand upon me like this? Job certainly believed that God had a purpose. He had faith. And Job also had faith that in the midst of this, he could appeal to God. He, he, this is his desire, right? He wants to speak to God. Have you ever felt that way? If I, if I can just call customer service, if I, if I could just get in touch with the boss, if I could just talk to the manager, I could sort all this out. And all throughout the book of Job, Job is pleading, if I could just talk to him, if I could just talk to him. In chapter 13, verse 3, he says, but I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue my case with God. But then in verse 20, only grant me two things, that I would not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer. Or let me speak and you will reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. And this is just one example of how Job would, would say to his friends and say to God, if I could just talk to you, if I could just appeal, if I could just lay my case before you. He had faith that he could appeal to God. And like I said earlier, one last thing, and we can think of other things, I'm sure, is Job had faith to keep his integrity. Because you might, you might be tempted to say, okay, Job confessed the right things, but did Job live in light of that? 
Did he walk the walk? Did he practice what he preached? Well, God certainly believes so. In Job chapter 2, verse 3, after Satan had attacked all of Job's estate and his children and his servants and his cattle, and Job did not raise his fist at God, God himself says in verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Job was a man of integrity. Even amidst the doubts and the fears and the confusion, he would not give in to the temptation. When his wife said, curse God and die, Job said, no. Later in chapter 31, verse 1, one example of Job's integrity, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? In other words, I protected myself against even lust. Even in the midst of what he was going through, Job tried not to offend God because of his faith. I think you can see Job was a man of faith. And as someone that the New Testament provides for us in the book of James as an example, his faith is that which we should emulate. But was Job's faith perfect? Was his faith void of any holes, any confusion, any doubts? Did he have this strong, mountain-moving faith that we hear sometimes? No, Job also had many doubts. Let me walk through some of his doubts. And maybe you can relate to some of these doubts when you go through suffering. And the first and probably most tragic, and one that we'll explore more in, in future sermons, is Job doubts that God is for him. That God is on his side. Look what Job, this is from the, the opening text, verse, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Then Job said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. You see, Job does not attribute any of his suffering to Satan. He doesn't know that God is for him, that God is on his side. He doubts God is for him. He also doubts that life has any meaning or joy. His suffering has taken away from him the meaning of life. Listen to his words in chapter 7. Think, think almost, if you didn't know this was from the Bible, you might think this was a, a hardened atheist. He says, has not man a hard service on earth? Are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow, like a hired hand who looks for his wages. So I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long and I am full of tossing till the dawn. For Job, life has become futile, meaningless, joyless, empty. Furthermore, Job has doubts about any hope for the future. 
He says in chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never see any good. My eye will never again see good. Do you see that? It's over. No hope. No future. Never again. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. This is all that there is, is what Job is saying. I, I don't know if there's anything beyond this. Then finally, he doubts God's intentions in his suffering. In other words, why? why, why would Job doubts that there could be any redeeming value in the suffering he is going through. Job 10, verse 2 says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and the favor and favor the designs of the wicked? Do you hear the cynical attitude here? God, does it seem good to you to do this to me? Verse 4, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as a man's years that you should seek out my iniquity and search for my sin? Although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand. Wow, Job's really questioning God's purpose. He's basically saying to God, you know that I'm innocent, but you're acting like I'm not. Are you happy now, God? We might recoil at that, but perhaps that could resonate with your heart more than you care to say. And so I ask, can doubt dwell with faith? Clearly, Job believed. Clearly, Job doubted. By way of summary, we can see Job had faith. He had faith in God's power and sovereignty. He had faith that God created him with purpose. He had faith that he could appeal to God. He had faith to keep his integrity. At the same time, Job doubted that God was for him. He doubted that life has meaning or joy. He doubted that any hope lay for him in the future. He doubted God's intentions in his suffering. These two things are true at the same time for Job. Brothers and sisters, can you relate to this tension? Can you relate to that interplay of faith and doubt? What do we mean by faith and doubt? Just to clarify what I mean and what I don't mean. Faith and doubt. There are many definitions we could probably offer for faith, but let me give you a simple definition for our purposes today. Faith is simply this. Confidence in God and his promises. Confidence. Not, not a rash, uncontrolled boldness, but a peaceful assurance. Confidence. Confidence in God, that means who God is, and confidence in his promises, that means what he says. God and his word. God and his promises. And so here's what I don't mean when I say faith. I don't mean presumption. Nor do I mean wishful thinking. Nor fantasies. Nor imagination. Nor self-confidence. Nor some undefined spirituality. I don't mean magic. I don't mean superstition. I don't mean positive thinking. What I mean is confidence in God. Who he is, what he says. And no matter what life looks like, I can still trust in him. 
The Bible says in Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you see the who God is and his promises in that same verse? It says confidence in God, that's you must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. That's his promises. And without this faith, the word of God says you cannot please God. Confidence in God, who he is, what he's promised. What do we mean by doubt? If that's what faith is, then doubt would be, in a sense, the opposite, right? If faith is confidence, then doubt is lack of confidence. Doubt is defined in the Greek New Testament as, un, as I'm sorry, wavering, wavering, hesitant uncertainty. Not a complete denial, but a, I'm not sure about this. Hold on. A general lack of confidence. You, you may move forward, but you move forward with fear. You may even be stagnant and frozen. But I'm not talking here today about final unbelief. I hope that's clear because words can get tricky. Sometimes we use the word unbelief like doubt. And sometimes we use the word unbelief like atheism and agnosticism. So I'm not talking today about a complete rejection of God, rejecting God's ways, giving up on the faith completely. I'm not talking about apostasy or atheism. But what I'm talking about when I say doubt is that wavering hesitancy. Just like we can mine through the book of Job and find many passages where he says, if I can just talk to God, and then in the same exact book, hear Job say, there's no way I could talk to God. Well, what is it, Job? Can you talk to God or not talk to God? Job would probably say, I don't know. And sometimes in life, we just throw our hands in the air and say, I just don't know. I, I know what I confess, but I'm, I'm uncertain. I'm unsure. I lack confidence. I doubt. Shelley Abbott, Shelby Abbott said, Doubt is different from unbelief in a similar way that temptation is to sin. Doubts come and go. But unbelief is a conclusion that someone reaches, a deliberate decision to live life as if there is no God. So Job did not capitulate ultimately to unbelief. He lived life knowing that there is a God. But he certainly did doubt. And that's the tension that's before us this morning. Have you been there? Have you wrestled with this? Have you believed one minute, and it feels like the next minute you don't believe, you struggle, you doubt, you're confused. And then you see others around you preaching boldly, defending the faith with confidence, evangelizing, worshiping with joy, and you're stuck. And you may not say it out loud, but you're wondering, is this real? Does God love me? Why are these things happening to me? we begin to do the, the yeah buts, like we tell our students, our children, stop with the yeah buts. Like, yeah, but. Yeah, I know that God is sovereign, but. Yeah, I know that God is all powerful and the gospel could change anyone's life, but you haven't met so-and-so. 
If there's something that I doubt even this moment, I doubt that you have never doubted. We feel uncomfortable saying that. But the truth is, we doubt. We doubt certain doctrines that are hard to hear. You might confess them to be true, but in your heart, you struggle. And like Job, I'm sure that many times you've doubted God's goodness to you. You doubted God's grace. There may have been a situation in your life that you think, if this all worked out this way, God would receive so much glory, and then it doesn't work out that way. You wonder, does God know what he's doing? Can doubt dwell with faith at the same time? I want to um, intensify the problem here by positing what Job went through as if he had another friend, a modern-day friend, someone living in this time period, telling him how to process these things. Because, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of danger out there under the guise of Christianity. So I want you to imagine with me a hypothetical situation. We know there's Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, and later in the book there's Elihu. But have you heard of the fifth friend? The long-lost fifth friend, like the long-lost fifth beetle. His name is Joel. No, not the minor prophet Joel. I'm talking about Joel Osteen. And in my imagination, there's this pseudographical lost chapter of the Bible. And in this chapter, Job is in the ash heap, and he finds a copy of Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. Not a surprise that it's in the ash heap, by the way. But Job, remember, is driven to absolute despair, questioning God's goodness. Imagine if he took this book and opened it up in the midst of his suffering, what would he hear? This is what he would hear. He would hear, you were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. Turns the page, and he sees, it's going to happen. Suddenly, your situation will change for the better. He will bring your dreams to pass. So Job turns the page again, and he sees, God wants us to have healthy, positive self-images, to see ourselves as priceless treasures. He wants us to feel good about ourselves. And there's another quote directly from the book. The first step to living at your full potential is to enlarge your vision. To live your best life now, you must start looking at life through eyes of faith, seeing yourself rising to new levels, see your business taking off, see your marriage restored, see your family prospering, see your dreams come to pass. You must conceive it and believe it is possible if you ever hope to experience it. This is the advice that Job would receive from his friend Joel, Joel Osteen, and many other like him today. Some of these, quite frankly, read just like a fortune cookie. Now, I hope you understand this is a fictitious story. Job did not discover this book in the ash heap. But what is not fictitious about this is there are corners of Christianity, often called prosperity gospel, name it and claim it, word of faith, 
that promote this kind of thinking. And the thinking is, if you just have enough faith, you will prosper. And so if there was a fifth friend in the story named Joel, he would tell Job, the reason you're in this situation is you didn't think big enough. You didn't have enough faith. This is the man who lost his children, his servants, his cattle, his prosperity, his estate, his health. And most importantly, he suffered not knowing how God can allow this to happen. And what do you say to a man like that? Just have more faith? Enlarge your vision? Some of you know exactly what it means to be told by someone while you went through suffering that it was your lack of faith that brought that suffering upon you. And so no wonder many of us, when we doubt, we suffer from guilt and shame because we've been shamed. Job was wrestling with propositional truths on one hand. God is good, God is sovereign, God is just. And his circumstances on the other. He believed in God, but he questioned God. There was some hope to speak with God, but he doubted he really could. It's like knowing these things are true, but I just can't put it all together. He knows his Redeemer lives. We've sung it. Yet he says there's no one to mediate. Kind of reminds me of of the puzzle that our family just did. We started this thousand-piece puzzle. It was a Charlie Brown Christmas puzzle. And just finished it last week with one piece missing. And so many of the pieces are the same color, so it's like really hard to figure out how, how it all fits together. But of course, the reason we're able to do this, besides the fact that um, while we had it half done, a child fell on it and we had to do it all over again and, and all these things, is because there's, there's a picture on the box, right? When you do a puzzle, you're trying to get the puzzle to look like the picture, right? Imagine if there were no picture. Imagine someone dumped a thousand pieces on your dining room table and said, put it all together. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you what it looks like in the end. And and, and little by little, you this this is an edge piece. This probably goes here. And these pieces look like they go together. And little by little, you're putting it together. But there's so much frustration because you can't fit it all together. This is Job's frustration. He's got pieces of the puzzle, but he can't see the big picture. And maybe if he did, he would have acted differently. Maybe if he knew what was happening behind the scenes. But God kept him in the dark so that what came out of Job's mouth was authentic and genuine. And so that you and I, when we read it, would hear the human heart that goes through suffering. And know that you and your suffering and your questions and your doubts, you are not alone. Christopher Ash said, although Job is terrified... He longs to speak to God face to face. And this is the mark of a true worshiper. Even when I cannot understand what God is doing, I know it is God with whom I have to deal because he is God. And that is what it is to be a worshiper, to bow down before the one who alone is God. That tension is probably summed up mostly in this verse that we've considered before, Job 13, 15, where he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Two things true at the same time. Though he slay me, my my doubts about his goodness, my doubts about why he's doing this, my doubts about his grace, my doubts about his justice, though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will hope in him. 
And I want to point out to you, brothers and sisters, today what I think is the most important part of this verse is those two words underlined. In Him. In Him. I ask you, where is Job's faith and hope? In himself? His friends would say it should be in yourself because you're the one holding yourself back. You sinned. If Joel Osteen were here, he would say it's in your circumstances. Put your faith in your dream. Put your faith in what should happen. Imagine your family coming back. Imagine your cattle coming back, Job. But what does Job say here? He says that his faith is in him. That is, in God. The most important thing I could communicate to you today, no matter how much doubt might be mingled with your faith, is what matters most is where your faith is placed. The object of your faith must be God. God, the object of our faith. As stated before, the book of Job is surprisingly not as much about suffering as we might think it is. The book is really about God. It's about God and our relationship to God. Oh yes, suffering brings that out. But it's not the main theme. The main theme is God. And throughout the book, we're presented with glimpses of who God is. But we don't get the whole picture. And I look forward as we move on to getting to more of Job's speech, uh, God's speech to Job, especially in chapter 38. But just a, a small um, sample of that. Here's what God says later in the book when he speaks to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Our faith is as strong as the object in which we place it. And we've seen throughout the book so far that he is the God who made the stars. He is the God who rules the seas. He is the God who draws near. He is the God of hope. He is the God who redeems. And this God must be the object of our faith. The most important thing is this. What matters most is not the quality of your faith, but the object of your faith. Now don't get me wrong as though I'm saying if, if the quality of your faith is, is infinitesimal, then just be satisfied with that. There are ways to build our faith, to stretch our faith, to grow our faith. But at the end of the day, the most important thing about your faith is the object of your faith. It is not the strength, one commentator says. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. There are people out there in this world who have what we might say is great faith. The Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are very certain about their doctrine, but their faith is in the wrong God. Some atheists are very confident, very confident. 
And the prosperity and health and wealth guys seem quite confident. But what is their faith set upon? Is it upon God the object of our faith? When God is the object of our faith, we are confessing that we as a people worship this God and no one else. The only God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The eternal creator. The everlasting father. The sustainer of all the living. It is this God in whom we place our faith. Remember what Joel Osteen said in his book. And I think this quote captures the danger of this false thinking. He says, you must start looking at life through the eyes of faith. Okay, so far so good. But then he says, seeing yourself rising to new levels. In other words, there's a bait and switch tactic. He's talking about faith, and so we listen to what he says, but he says that faith is in you imagining, envisioning what life should be like. And if you could just claim that, imagine that, affirm that, speak that, it will happen. That is not biblical, and that is dangerous. That is shaming and guilting if you were to believe that. The message of the Bible is not put faith in your circumstances. The message of the Bible is put faith in God. The message of the book of Job, in accordance with all of Scripture, is to look at God, to gaze upon His beauty, to behold Him in His temple. Look to God and live. Look to God and live. Put your faith on God alone. There's a story in the book of Numbers that captures this quite well. You might know the story about the children of Israel in the wilderness. And it says in verse 6 of Numbers 21, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Now how would the Lord take away the serpents? It says, So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Look and live. Look and live. It wasn't some sort of ritual that they had to do. God did all the work. He raised up this bronze serpent. And the only thing that God required of his people... His people who sinned and felt the sting of sin was to simply look and live. The object of our faith, that is the most important thing about your faith. Do you think those people in the wilderness had doubts? Like, what is going on here? Why is there, why is there a statue of a fiery serpent? But all they had to do was look and they would live. And this, brothers and sisters, ties so greatly into uh, the gospel. Gospel light for days of darkness. I want to encourage you this morning in three things that the Lord Jesus Christ does for us to help us with our faith even amidst our doubts. One is to look to Jesus and live. Secondly is to look to Jesus, doubts and all. And thirdly, look to Jesus for endurance. Because what Job could only see dimly, Jesus shines the light on and he completes that circle. He completes that puzzle for us. First, look to Jesus and live. That story that we just read about in Numbers, 
Jesus brings it to completion in John chapter 3, when he speaks to Nicodemus, giving us the most popular verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. But before John 3.16, what does he say in verse 14? He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The, re- the reason that uh, Moses put this, this fiery serpent on a bronze pole, it wasn't anything magical in that serpent itself. It was to point the children of Israel to a greater reality, that one day the Son of God would be lifted up from the earth, and anyone who looks to him shall live. And I implore you today, if you've never put your trust in Christ because your faith is in your good works or your faith is in your rituals, your church attendance and your, and your sacraments and your pillars and your whatever, or your faith is in your circumstances. I've got money. I've got a house. I've got everything I need. Or your faith is in, in your character. You think you're a good person and you give to charity and you're a nice guy and this and that. I want you to know that your faith is misplaced. Your faith can only save you if it is directed at Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God who bore the sin and shame of the world when he died on the cross. And on the third day, praise God, he rose again. Jesus defeated death and he beckons all who are weak and heavy laden to come to him. He invites you to come to him and to look and to live. And if you're not in him, None of what I'm saying today makes sense. But you can, simply by coming to him by faith and placing your faith in Christ. But I also want to encourage you, those of you especially who have put your faith in Christ, but you're wrestling with your doubts. Like Job, there are things you believe, and then there are things you're like, ah, not so sure. Let me encourage you. Come to Jesus, doubts and all. Don't be afraid of him. He is strong and kind. He is gentle and lowly. Come to Jesus. Look to him, doubts and all. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Matthew 12, which is a fulfillment of prophecy, talks about Jesus as the servant. I'm going to start in verse 15, where he um, heals people. And then verse 16 says not to make him known. And the prophecy begins now in verse uh, 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is the character of our Lord Jesus. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoldering wick. Perhaps you feel like you are a bruised reed. In the first century, reeds, this tube-like plant would grow 
just about everywhere. It can be used for uh, articles of clothing. It can be used as instruments. It can be used for many things. But they're, they're a dime a dozen. They're, they're disposable. A bruised reed is basically worthless. And so if there was a reed with a hole in it, a reed with a bruise in it, people would just throw it away or walk over. It's not a big deal. But the Bible says that this Savior is so gentle, cares so much about his people, that he won't even break a bruised reed. And if you feel bruised by the storms of life, understand the Lord does not desire to discard you like others would. But even more so, I want to focus on that smoldering wick. A wick on a candle. The light is shining, right? But little by little, what happens? It gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. At some point, it's smoldering. At the very end of the candle's life, the wick is simply puttering out tiny little spark and all you see is smoke. And again, what would society do, especially a first century society who relied upon candles in order to uh, light up the room? They would just blow it out, just snuff it out, light another one. And maybe you came today feeling like your wick is smoldering, that you once shined bright with this great faith, but now it's kind of dim. And you wonder, what does Jesus think of me? Is he ashamed of me? Is he mad at me because I'm... My wick is smoldering. On the contrary, he draws even closer to you. Because a smoldering wick, he will not quench. He will not quench it. He will not snuff it out. And the opposite of that is to fan the flame. To make it shine brighter. And so look to Christ with all of your doubts, with your wick as, as at the end of the rope as you might feel. Come to Christ and he will fan the flame, and you will shine once again. He embraces you in your weakness. He wraps you in his loving arms. That is why when he healed this man's son, the man can say to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. You ever feel that way? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus doesn't say, what are you talking about? Until you get it all together, then I'll help you. That's not the character of our Lord. Come, with, come to him with all of your doubts, with all of your fears. And one last example of this at the end of the Gospel of John is Thomas. If there's anyone who doubted the New Testament, is Thomas. That poor guy goes down in history as doubting Thomas. When Thomas was with the other disciples who told him, we have seen the Lord. But what did Thomas say? He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's pretty audacious, right? I mean, Thomas was with them. Feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, walking on water. He's seen it all. He heard the prophecies. And how dare he say this? What is Jesus going to think of that? His doubts. Jesus turned him away. Well, I think you know the story. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Oh man. He said to Thomas, because he knew what was in Thomas's heart. 
Thomas doesn't make the first word here, right? Jesus went out of his way to address the heart of a doubting disciple. And he didn't shame him. He didn't guilt him. He didn't say, just enlarge your vision. He said, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He wants his disciples to believe, but he comes to them in the midst of their doubts and fears. And Thomas answered and says, my Lord and my God. The object of his faith was Christ. So I think that when Jesus, all throughout the New Testament, calls his disciples, you of little faith, or he says, why are you doubting? I don't think he's speaking these words from a place of of anger, but a place of pity and compassion. And why do I focus here on the gentle character of Jesus when we have God in, in Job thundering forth from the storm cloud? You know why? Because the same God in Job is Jesus Christ. This is God. And the Bible gives us the whole picture of who he is. So put your faith in him. Look to him. Come to him with all of your doubts. And finally, come to him. Look to him for endurance. Because at the end of the day, this is what the book of Job is teaching us about doubts and faith. It's yes. The answer is yes. Faith can dwell with doubt. But how can we endure in the midst of having these two things seemingly warring in our hearts? How can we move on? How can we persevere? How can we endure? How can we not give up? How can we make it so that our doubts don't become apostasy? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus for our endurance. Hebrews bears this out. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run with endurance? It tells us in the very next verse, looking to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Not keeping your eyes on, well, if I just make it through this week, I'll get that raise. No. The object of your faith is Jesus Christ who is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In other words, he endured so we can endure, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If you are growing weary or faint-hearted today, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who endured for you. And when you look to him, you will draw your strength from that endurance. Like Job, we may experience trials that rattle our faith, but God has a purpose in those trials. Charles Spurgeon said, sometimes we fancy that we have strong faith when indeed our faith is very weak. And how are we to know whether it was weak or strong unless God tries it? A man that should lie in bed week after week and perhaps get the idle women to his head that he was very strong would be pretty certain that he was mistaken. It is only when he sets about work requiring muscular strength that he will discover how strong or weak he is. God would not have us form a wrong estimate of ourselves. He loves not that we should say that we are rich and increased in goods and have no need of anything when we are the reverse. 
And therefore, he sends to us the trial of our faith that we may understand how strong or weak it is. And you might ask, Spurgeon, why, why would you say that? Why would God want us to know our faith was weak? Well, so that we would not depend on ourselves, but that the object of our faith would be God. Because if the object of our faith is God, then it doesn't matter what the circumstance is. But if the object of our faith is our health and our prosperity, take that away, and there goes our faith. Now, I hope, just by way of disclaimer, that none of this is an excuse to doubt. We do want our faith to grow and strengthen. There are practical ways the Bible addresses to strengthen our faith. We did a course on this a few years ago called Faith Builders Fellowship. The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. The means of grace. Testimonies. Prayer. Of course there are ways that we should pursue to strengthen our faith. But all of this starts with knowing where to look. To look and live. His faithfulness, not our faithfulness. His power, not our powers. God, the object of our faith. This is like a child walking on the icy ground, holding on to the grip of his father's hand. If something were to happen, that child were to slip, and he were to be saved from slipping, at the end of the day, is it the child's grip or is it the father's grip that is saving that child from falling? And you know the answer to that question. And sometimes your grip might seem loose. Just come to him. His grip on you is tight. He will hold you fast. I know sometimes the water seems deep. I know the water seems rough, but God is saying to you, I know it's dark, it's cold, but take my hand. Trust me. Take his hand. This is what faith is, even amidst the doubts. And so by way of application, I just would say this to you, brothers and sisters, for your own life and for those around you. As the book of Jude tells us, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 22 says it clearly. Have mercy on those who doubt. Why? Because God has mercy on those who doubt. And start with yourself. When the doubts come, where do you go? You go to Christ. Because in him there is no condemnation. Look and live. In all seasons of life, look and live. You will find peace. Brothers and sisters, what we learn from Job's wrestling with his faith is this. Your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith. And so take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off your circumstances. Place them squarely on the Lord Jesus, who is gentle and merciful, who endured to the end on your behalf, and continue to hold on to him, even among the doubts. He knows where he's leading you. His way is always best, and he will not fail. Look and live. Amen.